Welcome to, back to Maastricht Law Talk. Today, I'm very excited to talk about contract law, one of my favorite fields, more after the intro. Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many, a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. I'm here today with Jan Smits, full professor of European private law at Maastricht University, and he is also the head of the Department of Private Law here at UM. Jan, welcome. Thank you very much. You studied Dutch law in Leiden, and I think you also defended your PhD there. Is that right? I did. That was on the topic of, uh, of the reliance principle and contractual liability. We will get into that during uh, our podcast a little bit. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Next to your professorship, you are the director of the Master European Private Law Institute, together with Reis van Dijk, and also a board member of several legal publications, for example, the Dutch Journal of Legal Philosophy. Mm -hmm. But you are also, uh, which is very interesting for a lot of our listeners, a deputy judge at the Amsterdam Court of Appeal. Can you maybe just for a second, maybe in one sentence, tell us what your um, what responsibilities are there? I'll be in, you know, it's in the in the Dutch context, at Dutch universities. It is very common for people uh, who are a professor also to be a deputy judge in a, uh, in a district court or in a court of appeal. And it simply means that you would sit in a panel a few times a year. Um, in my case, I don't do that that often. Um, but in the Amsterdam Court of Appeal, it means that you can sit in a panel with uh, two other judges um, and uh, uh, discuss and decide a case. You also recently published uh, Advanced Introduction to Private Law, a um, well, very advanced introduction. <laughs> um, can you maybe just quickly tell us uh, what the book is about? Yeah, of course. I mean, actually, this is uh, not so advanced. Um, and uh, what the book tries to do is to introduce, um, in particular, lay people to the field of private law. Mm -hmm. um, so private law, you could say, permeates uh, entire society. But not many people who are not a lawyer know much about this uh, uh, this field, although they are confronted with it on a daily basis, <laughs> uh, in a way, almost every hour of their uh, of their uh, of their life. And what I try to do in this little book, which contains only uh, 130 pages, um, is indeed to introduce people to the main fields of private law, not only contract law, but also to the law of tort, liability law, um, mm -hmm. the law of property, uh, family law, and the law of inheritance. And today we will focus on the first part, contract law. That sounds absolutely fine. <laughs> um, well, you also have uh, a book published upon. Um, comparative Contract Law, I think, is the title. That's the book on Comparative Contract Law, yes. Yeah. Um, which is uh, essentially a book for first-year students who uh, have to be introduced to the uh, field of contract law, assuming they don't know anything about it. So it's indeed a book that we use here at Maastricht University for our first-year students in the European Law School. 
the interesting thing there is that at other universities, it is also used uh, for uh, courses being taught there, including also master courses. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, for, yeah, that's, that's mainly because at many other universities uh, outside of Maastricht, um, they tend to focus very much on the national aspect in the mm -hmm. first few years. Now they get to the comparative aspect, for example, in the master stage, and then the book might come in, uh, might come in uh, useful. So to the listeners, I will also mention it later again, if you're very interested afterwards in contract law, this would be one place to go <laughs> as an introduction, I would suppose. Um, you mentioned contracts are very important to society. And when I opened up your private law book, um, the new one, uh, there was this one term contract society, which um, sounds very nice. And I thought, well, what is such a contract society? Why are we living in a contract society? Yeah, that's a very good question to ask. I, 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 I use the term contract society. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, our entire society, uh, the way in which we live together, um, is very much shaped by contracts. It would be unthinkable, um, to live together in our modern society without the ability to conclude binding contracts with <laughs> other people. Yeah. Uh, so if you just think, for example, uh, about uh, a simple sales contract, That allows very much also for division of labor. Uh, that's also the point that was already made by Adam Smith uh, a long time ago, mm -hmm. where he said that contracting does allow for division of labor because it allows people to focus, to specialize on the things they are best at. Um, it means uh, that people no longer uh, have to do all the things uh, uh, themselves, but can rely on others and can contract with other people in order to get the things that they uh, that they want. So that's, that's, that's already one very good reason why contracts, uh, are so very essential to our society. But just think of a simple sales contract. We can think of employment contracts. You have the same thing there. Um, that's of course very useful that you can bind yourself as a person to work for uh, <laughs> somebody else and get paid for it. Yeah. Uh, services contracts are uh, also very important in, uh, in practice. And so one could, one could go on. I think the example that was in one of my first uh, tutorials of contract law was that, well, you go before university in the morning, go to the bakery and just uh, buy two breads. And this is just a normal thing to do for everyone. Um, but in the end, you concluded at least one uh, legal act, the contract. Um, it depends also, again, on the legal system, I, I would suppose. But you really do it all the time, right? You do it all the time, even without realizing uh, realizing this. Um, and I should add to that, luckily, without realizing this, because in, <laughs> in luckily 99% of the cases, um, uh, there is no real problem uh, in case you have concluded a contract. Everyone um, does what he or she must do according to this contract. In that sense, there is no need for the law to really intervene. At the same time, you must say that even when you just buy something at a bakery or buy yourself a cup of coffee, um, lawyers would like to say that it is contract law that allows people to do so. so contract <laughs> law facilitates people in entering into that type of transactions. So when it's so important for a society, there must be a certain goal behind contract law i would suppose so this goal could for example be or aim to um well facilitate society in everyday life um, but yeah what is the goal of a contracting 
Yeah, well, I, I guess that you can answer that question at different uh, levels mm -hmm. um, for one specific individual. Um, there is often a very specific reason why you want to contract, simply that you want to get something from another person. <laughs> and this is the best possible way to do that. You don't have to have to steal it away, uh, but you can conclude a contract uh, and the uh, uh, you can pay a price for the product that you uh, that you like. Um, so that's for, for a specific individual. Viewed at it from a more general uh, perspective, uh, again, uh, from the viewpoint of, uh, uh, of the economy, for example, or society in general, there's of course also a very good reason why contracts uh, must uh, bind, uh, must be binding upon people, which is simply that in that way you are able to have this, what, what lawyers like to call the cement of society. Mm -hmm. That's also how I, how I call it in my, uh, in my recent book, The Advanced Introduction to Private Law. That contract law is in a way the cement of the, uh, uh, of the society, of a, of a well-functioning economy, because it allows transactions to run in a very smooth way. So it somehow, um, f well, facilitates the distribution of wealth in society so that everyone i mean this is a general discussion of uh, capitalism now maybe <laughs> um but it, it, it might well it is able to ensure that everyone has some kind of wealth um well that's that's an interesting question to ask because there is a there's a wide-ranging discussion among legal philosophers legal theorists about what is the exact aim of contract law mm -hmm. Um, and you could, when you think about different fields of the law, there are some fields where there is clearly a uh, distributive aim that you can that you can see. Uh, and the main example of of a field where you see that aim is, of course, tax law. Uh, so the main aim of taxes is to redistribute wealth in society. Mm -hmm. um, people uh, who are rich or have a very high or who have a very very high income, they. Uh, have to pay more taxes in a progressive uh, system of progressive taxation uh, than people with a less income or uh, with uh, uh, less wealth. Uh, there's a good reason for that. Uh, but that's really distribution of uh, um, of wealth. In contract law, it seems that's a something, bit more complicated, right? <laughs> it's much more complicated because contract law is not the, you could say, the right instrument to uh, <laughs> to attain, to to promote that type of distribution of wealth. Because it would mean that uh, for each individual case in which the contract is concluded, uh, there would then have to be some government uh, institution um, or a court or a judge mm -hmm. that would have to say, okay, we don't really find this contract very just. Um, and that would be that would be unthinkable. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the aim of contract law. The aim of contract law is much more to allow people to, uh, well, to, to, to obtain the things that they uh, want. Uh, and the law very much facilitates uh, that goal uh, and has, has other means to redistribute uh, uh, wealth or income. You, you mentioned the courts uh, intervening in contracts and then it directly rang a bell uh, here in my head. And I had to think of the freedom to contract of everyone, um, which, I mean, for the listeners that are here for the first time now, seems very nice, freedom to contract, whatever that might be. Um, does it just mean that I'm allowed to contract or what does this principle of contract law entail? Yeah, yeah. The thing is that lawyers or legal academics very much like to think uh, about contract law in terms of, of, of principles, underlying <laughs> principles. And one of these main principles, you could say probably the main principle is indeed freedom of contract. Um, as a person, 
as an individual in society, you are allowed to contract essentially about anything um, and also with anyone mm -hmm. uh, on the conditions that, 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 that you like. And of course, you will have to uh, find somebody else willing also to accept the conditions uh, under which you want to contract. Uh, but if you have this mutual consent, then uh, the contract will be binding. So this freedom of contract is uh, very important to uh, to contract lawyers as an underlying principle, um, and it's a principle that was uh, well has not been around uh, at all times, um, but it has certainly been around since the early nineteenth, uh, late eighteenth uh, mm -hmm. century, as the underlying principle of uh, of contract law. Uh, it's it's not a principle that 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 is that is uh, applicable uh, all over the board. Of course, there are many exceptions to uh, to the freedom of uh, uh, of contract, and probably the the the, the main exception uh, that you have to think of is cases where public policy would mm -hmm. stand in the way of people concluding a contract. And a very nice example that is often given, I also give this example always to my uh, first year students, <laughs> is the example of a, a hired assassin. If you hire someone oh, to yeah. kill somebody else, then of course the uh, the, the, the law, uh, mandatory laws, would intervene here and would say, well, that's a type of contract that you cannot conclude even if the other party agrees to do this, and if you are willing to pay a price to that other person for this, public policy is going to intervene and is going to say this is a contract that we see as illegal and therefore mm. freedom of contract has to has to go. So the starting point would be that everyone well, can contract with whomever he or she wants in all the different areas, um, can cover everything, but importantly it has to stick to the law yeah yeah and the one thing the one thing to add to this is that uh, the way in which the principle of freedom of contract works out uh, is often uh, well not so uh, fair because mm -hmm. you could very well imagine and that was also indeed the 19th century uh, idea that as long as everyone is able to freely contract about anything you want to contract about, that uh, a uh, just and fair contract would come about automatically. That's, of course, not the case, because in, <laughs> in reality, in our society, some contracting parties are simply much more powerful uh, than others. But think the, the, think the, again eh, about the employment contract that I mentioned, yeah. that I mentioned before. Yeah. You could very well imagine that you have a, a, a well economically powerful uh, employer, uh, a big company, for example. If you would allow that big company to conclude any type of contract with future uh, employees that they that they like, uh, that would not work out to the advantage of the employee. Mm -hmm. That's where we have many why we have many mandatory laws that uh, that uh, that that say that you need to comply with certain requirements if you enter into such an employment contract. There are other examples for other contracts as well. So the traditional view is that, well, you, um, <laughs> how to say, um, mutual consent is enough for fairness to be there, mm -hmm. right? But yeah. nowadays, I mean, I mean, we focus mostly on the podcast on the European Union, um, which then has... Uh, Probably in that regard, maybe the same, um, well, the same, not function, but uh, ideas. But the odd one out very often, which we have seen earlier uh, in earlier episodes, is the United Kingdom um, here in the European Union at the moment, 
where we have seen that, I think, in the gift-giving episode, where we talked about consideration in English uh, contract law, um, that it seems there to be very much still on this level of as long as you have agreements, it's fine. What you can certainly say, when you look at this in a comparative perspective, um, that, that, that English contract law, uh, at least traditionally, uh, much more favored the the freedom of the parties and still favors in many respects the binding force of the contracts. When mm -hmm. we just spoke about courts, judges intervening into contracts, you see that somewhat less happening in the English legal system, uh, probably because the, the, uh, the, the English uh, still tend to think of a contract as a very much as a sacred, uh, <laughs> sacred uh, uh, bond tie that the contracts have that the contracting parties i must say have entered into um, and in the european continent so in countries like germany or the netherlands or france um, or italy or spain indeed uh, you see that it's much more accepted that a judge would intervene into a contract uh, in case that would lead to uh, manifest unfairness uh, of one of the parties. Although there are certain limits to that as well, that you might still speak about somewhat later. Mm -hmm. But you are right. Eh? Um, uh, there are some very famous statements also by English judges, ju judges in, 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 uh, in well-known cases where they say, well, the uh, most important thing about the contract is simply you have to keep it, <laughs> uh, no matter uh, what you have agreed upon. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that is the struggle um, about comparative law. You can never, ever uh, <laughs> cover everything. Um, yeah, so we, we cover the principle of uh, freedom to contract, but are there others that um, can maybe be um, yeah, pointed out to in all, not all, but most of the jurisdictions here? Yeah. Um, well, the, 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 uh, when, you, when you speak about the main principles underlying contract law, next to freedom of contract, Lawyers would say that there is the principle of uh, freedom of form. So a contract okay. doesn't have to comply with a certain form. Many, many lay people have different views of this. Eh? They, t they tend to think that a binding contract can only be a contract that is put on paper, yeah. uh, that is signed by the, by the parties. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, so what lawyers regard a contract is simply any um, binding agreements, yeah. like in your example, uh, buying a cup of coffee or, uh, or buying something at a bakery, that is a binding contract. You look, luckily, luckily, don't need to sign anything <laughs> before that contract is binding. So that's a, that's 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 an important uh, important aspect as well. I mean, that But also you, wouldn't work, right? I mean, I, I, it wouldn't work. No, no, yeah. no, no. But what what you see in any legal system is that there is a form requirement. For example, that you have to put the contract into writing, mm -hmm. or even that in some cases you have to go to a civil law notary on the European continent in cases where there is a need to protect one of the parties. Okay. So also uh, in case of credit agreements, if you want to take out money from uh, a lending institution like a bank. Um, there is often a requirement that you have to do this uh, in uh, on, on, that you have to sign a contract. Uh, uh, so put it on paper with all the rights and obligations of the parties nicely written down uh, that you have to sign, that both parties have to sign in order to make sure that in particular the consumer knows what he or she is entering into. So the presumption of the law there very much is if you first have to read something or 
have to sign something <laughs> that uh, by that simple act you are better better aware of what you are uh, what you are uh, well entering into and what you are actually bound to. But the question, of course, is whether that's really the case. But yeah, I mean, the, yeah. even with signing a contract, I've signed so many contracts. Or let's say in the, in the internet world, everyone knows the iTunes terms and conditions that change every five hours, um, <laughs> and you basically just click "I accept," right? So it's 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 not really um, being read by the consumers, I would suppose. Um, even my my mobile phone contract here, I have never ever read this. I think it was available in English, not in Dutch. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but okay. Yeah, no, that, that's certainly that's certainly true. The uh, uh, the 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 reason why, uh, therefore, there is a big de- there's a big debate about whether these so-called information requirements uh, mm. uh, on the on the on the on the part of the professional party, professional seller, professional service provider, uh, internet provider, uh, uh, these mandatory requirements that's something uh, on which there's a lot of debate whether that is really effective uh, or not mm-hmm. some say like you just did that it may not be very effective <laughs> but therefore you can simply get rid of must get rid of all of this yeah no but it, it does make sense with the notary i mean if i would have to go somewhere ded- dedicate my time to go to a notary i would probably know okay this is something serious yeah. so i will actually read it <laughs> And there too, eh, the thing about the notary, that's also something special there because the, the notary is supposed also to inform the parties about what they are entering into. Okay. Um, so for example, in the, uh, in the German uh, context, uh, when you want to buy a house, uh, you, you go to the notary, the notary will tell you about the many obligations that you are entering into in that case and will try to check whether that's really something that you want to have. Mm-hmm. Same thing with marriage contracts. So prenuptial um, agreements in many jurisdictions, you have to enter into these agreements uh, by going to a uh, to a notary, uh, and the notary will tell um, husband and wife, or wife and wife, or husband and husband mm. about what that actually means um, <laughs> to 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 uh, uh, to to get married and to um, possibly uh, um, uh, deviate from the uh, default regime. Um, for example, by excluding all community uh, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, of the wealth and money that the parties have, we can already see how broad contract law is. Um, we it's have very everything. Broad. Yeah. We have everything. We, we have, have everything. Marriages. Yeah. We have uh, <laughs> sales of goods, but uh, employment contracts. Any uh, further principles you want to mention, or maybe they will come up later on automatically? I don't know. Yeah, bind, binding force is the third is the third main principle. Lawyers tend to tend mm-hmm. to say, and of course they're all very closely related because the 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 the, the, the traditional view of looking at these contract law principles is uh, is by saying, well, uh, contracts uh, are binding uh, because they have been entered into freely, freedom of contract yeah. uh, by the uh, by the parties. So in that sense, these are not principles that really stand alone. These are so they're all intertwined somehow. They do. Also important for the next step we could talk about. So you already mentioned acceptance um, at some point before here in this discussion. So we, we do know that there must be an acceptance at some point, I would suppose. Um, but an acceptance would require some kind of offer. What? How do you make? How do you conclude a contract? So we need an acceptance, but what else is necessary there? Yeah. Well, lo- lawyers like to analyze the 
formation of the contract, the conclusion of the contract in terms of offer and acceptance. Mm -hmm. So what they are always looking for uh, in the in in reality, yeah, um, in order to analyze what is actually happening in case parties are entering into a contract, is that they are they're looking for on the one hand an offer made by the offeror. Uh, so just one person saying, okay, uh, I want to offer you my, we're in the Netherlands here, my bike. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, and I, I want to, I want to have, uh, 200 euros, mm -hmm. uh, for this bike. Uh, you could say that is an offer. And then you are, um, looking for the other party who has to accept, um, that offer as it is. So if the other party would then say, well, I only want to buy this bike, not for 200 euros, but for 100 euros. That's not a real acceptance because it means there is no consent of the parties. Parties are not in agreement there. Because he he or she changed the, the amount of money. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then what the, what the lawyer would then do is say, okay, in that case, perhaps the, uh, uh, the statement made by the offeree, um, <laughs> by the, uh, yeah, the, the lawyers are very good at making Those these types terms, of, yeah. making up these types of terms and using this type of terminology. <laughs> Uh, that what this offeree has said, this declaration of the offeree, perhaps is simply uh, a new offer that mm -hmm. was uh, that was made that can then again be accepted by the original uh, offeror, by the person in this case who wanted to sell his or her bike. So indeed, offer and acceptance is the traditional way um, in which formation of a contract uh, takes place, the way in which a contract is actually concluded. Um, like I said, it's simply a way of analyzing uh, the stage of formation of the contract, uh, and it's a way of analyzing it that does not always fit the uh, uh, the facts. Uh, if you are thinking about again eh, buying a cup of coffee in a supermarket <laughs> in, in, well, in a supermarket or in a cafe, yeah. uh, it would be it would be very strange to think of uh, uh, that 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 contract again in terms of offer and acceptance. Um, if you simply buy something in a supermarket uh, and you go to the uh, to the counter, you put your things there at the till and you pay for it. Well, you can analyze in terms of offer and acceptance, but you don't necessarily have to uh, have to do so. Yeah, and I mean, then in this, that example, who makes the offer, right? So is it maybe the me buying the breads and yeah, I'm ex like thirty cents are okay, or I'm already accepting, which doesn't make any sense <laughs> exactly yeah so then then lawyers in fact run into into trouble uh, with their uh, with their analysis so what you can say is that this this whole idea of offer and acceptance is mostly used in cases where the contract is concluded by parties who are at a distance uh, from each other so one party uh, sitting in singapore another party sitting in amsterdam mm -hmm. and they communicate with, with each other by way of email um, or perhaps they uh, they just uh, uh, chat, uh, or previously, uh, as it also happened, send letters to each other. <laughs> oh, <back in laughs> Not sure if that still happens today. <laughs> <laughs> But that's also the uh, the type of situation for which this thinking in terms of offer and acceptance was actually developed in mm -hmm. the 19th, uh, again in the 19th century. So many of the of the contract law, law rules that we have were developed uh, in the uh, in the 19th century already. I mean, again, it's a form thing, but I even I find myself sometimes printing a contract and sending it somewhere just because I feel more comfortable with um, this, this letter form, uh, more serious than just writing someone, just concluding a contract online, for example. So it seems more serious to print, to send it somewhere. And this would um, lead to the discussion of mutual consent. You mentioned that before, that you need consent of the both parties. But what has, does this consent have to entail? 
essentially only that parties are in agreement about what they want to contract about. So there need to be an agreement about the essential elements mm-hmm. of their uh, of their contract. And they will think of a simple uh, uh, purchase, uh, a contract for sale of goods. Uh, the only things that you need to agree about um, are the object that you want to sell and the, the the price that you want to pay. It may may of course be that that the parties have uh, want something else to be part uh, of the contract mm-hmm. that they find essential. That could very well be the case. So if uh, one of the parties, for example, really wants the object, let's say it's a car that you uh, that you want to that you want to uh, want to sell and buy. Where the buyer would say, I'm only interested in a car uh, of the color yellow, for example. Well, then that is automatically turned into an essential element of the contract. Mm-hmm. So then if the, uh, uh, if the, uh, uh, if the, uh, uh, well, the seller only has available a car in some other color, that means that the buyer is not going to, is not going to, to, to buy the car. And then there's no, there's no consent. Yeah. In such a case. It, it sounds it sounds very complicated. But in fact, it it's very it's very it it's very seem. simple. Yeah. It's simply that the parties need to be in agreement about what they find essential. I, I remember that in Germany there's um, the sh- so-called Scherzerklärung, which basically just means well, not agreement for uh, for fun, but um, well, acceptance for fun, for example. So that I, I mentioned that I could conclude a contract online with a friend, but maybe my friend doesn't take me seriously in that chat. So is the intention important in that regard? So I can even conclude a contract with you now, but maybe you wouldn't even intend to be bound by it, which is also one of the principles again. Yeah, that's, that's very well. That's very well possible. Um, so these these cases of non not non serious mm. uh, 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 declarations. That's a well-known topic in the area of of contract law. So this is discussed in every jurisdiction. In every <laughs> jurisdiction. And the interesting thing there, of course, is that that uh, some of these cases sometimes come before uh, the courts, uh, that the judge has to say something about this, uh, which in a way is very sad because it apparently then means that one of the parties uh, did not mean this to be unserious. The other party actually thought, uh, sometimes with reason, that there was a serious statement made by the uh, by the first party. Yeah. So that's how these cases end up in uh, end up in courts. That could very well happen. The, the way the way in which the law reasons about this is that it's all about, as you already indicated, about the question whether there was an intention to be legally bound. Mm-hmm. That's the main criterion that we tend to use in law for the question whether there is a binding agreement um, or not. But but then we also said earlier that for the individual um, contract law is very important because it can secure or um, well ensure. Uh, that you are actually getting something in return. So you can rely on that contract. But if I, we will conclude a contract now, and I don't even know that you don't have the intention to contract with me, don't I have to be protected somehow? That could, that could very well happen. So in, in, in principle, you need this intention to be legally bound uh, for both parties. In a case in which one party uh, um, does, well... Does, does not intend to be bound, but the other party, in fact, believes mm-hmm. the first party wants to be bound. There is something for that in law as well. So that's that's what we tend to call the reliance principle. Okay. Another principle. Again. <laughs> uh, in some cases, a party is protected um, uh, in, in case that party reasonably believed, has reason to believe, 
uh, that the first party in fact intended to be uh, uh, to be bound. So the well the well known cases there are mostly about uh, about all, about offers being made, mm-hmm. where the offeror, for example, the person uh, selling uh, an object in most cases. Um, made a mistake as to the price that is put into the uh, into the offer. So I will sell so for, you my Porsche for a thousand euro. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And if you intend to sell the, the Porsche for ten thousand, but yeah. mistakenly you forgot to add the uh, uh, the last zero uh, to the uh, to the price, then you are having this this problem of okay, did the other party, uh, the offeree, uh, uh, rely and could that other party reasonably rely? On the fact that I wanted to sell my Porsche for only a thousand euros, in most cases the answer would be no, mm-hmm. because you cannot expect someone to sell his or her Porsche for only a thousand euros. <laughs> well, unless sure, it's yeah. a very bad, a very bad car, Porsche. of course. <laughs> <laughs> or I think, ah, oh, this person is just very generous to me. Uh, once given the Porsche for a thousand. Sure, euros. that that type of circumstances can play a role in assessing the reasonable reliance of the other party. Yeah. Let's say I would sell you my bike now. Okay, maybe we're lawyers. We would put a bit more effort into that. But um, two people outside walking by agreeing on selling a bike, maybe even in written form, but this would probably just be two sentences, three sentences tops. Um, but I, I, I just can't imagine that this is everything there is to that contract. Um, in, 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 in most cases, so in my, uh, that, that I called before the 99% uh, rule, eh? 99% <laughs> of the cases, things go, go absolutely uh, uh, f- fine, no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so then parties don't even have to think about any other rule. So in the case of the, of the, uh, of the bike that is being, uh, being sold, uh, if things go well, it simply means that uh, that the uh, that the buyer is going to pay the price, that the seller is going to deliver uh, the mm-hmm. bike, and that's it. So, so no 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 problem. But then I jump on the bike, bike for ten minutes, and then just stops working. Yeah, if a problem does emerge, um, so if the bike turns out to be defective. Uh, then of course the rule, the the the, the law uh, has all kinds of rules uh, available in order to try to solve this uh, this problem. Mm-hmm. So the law will, in any event, say whether there is a case of what what we call eh, in sale of goods non-conformity. So whether the, uh, the the bike is in accordance with what you could reasonably expect uh, as a buyer. Uh, and the, 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 the law has certain rules about this. And in case the law would conclude, okay, there is indeed a case of non-conformity, then the law would continue with saying, okay, that means that you have certain remedies available that you can bring against the other party. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there are many, what I would call background, uh, rules that, that, that come into effect in case a problem would, in fact, em- uh, emerge. Uh, so lawyers would call these default uh, rules, mm-hmm. uh, supplementary rules, so rules supplementing the party agreement. And these rules are not rules that the parties need to explicitly agree upon. Um, they are simply there in most <laughs> continental, yeah. in most continental, so civil law systems, because of the fact that some legislature, mostly national legislatures, have have put these default rules into a civil code. And in common law jurisdictions, like an English law or an Irish law, uh, these default rules were mostly developed by the uh, judiciary, by the courts, although there too you have some specific statutes on this. You mentioned remedies. 
So um, let's jump into that directly, maybe. So uh, I bought the bike. I bike for 10 minutes. It just stops working. Um, I want the bike repaired and the seller just doesn't respond at all. What can I do? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that that's, that's, that sounds like a, like a common uh, problem. <laughs> Especially here <laughs> in Maastricht. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the you, you just said that the the the, the main listeners uh, of this podcast uh, would be uh, people who would only also be very interested in European developments. Mm -hmm. Here, the interesting thing is that we have some European rules on what you can do in case of such a non-conformity. Um, okay. Again, a defect in the in the goods. So the European legislature has uh, come up with certain rules that, uh, in particular, protect the uh, the buyer. Uh, of a uh, consumer good like uh, like a bike uh, that you that you would buy for your own private use. Mm -hmm. So what the European legislature has come up with, for example, is a rule that you are able to claim uh, repair or replacement in a case in which you bought the bike with a, from a professional seller. So if you just bought it from another individual yeah on the street um, <laughs> on the street then it would be uh, would be different yeah and then you would have all kinds of rules at the national level um, made by national legislatures or the national judiciary that would also protect you as a um, as a buyer so what you can do in essence is you would be able uh, to uh, to uh, well to claim uh, to claim damages or you would be able in most jurisdictions also to claim uh, performance uh, so that would come down indeed to uh, claim repair um, of the uh, mm. uh, of the defective bike that you that you have bought uh, and you would possibly <coughs> also be able to uh, terminate the contract that you have bought if the requirements for that are met in the end it doesn't make such a big difference if i get damages or um or a specific performance in this case i would suppose Because I, I could just repair it myself or let it repair it somewhere and then get the money back from the seller. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be different if I don't have the bike yet at all and I want this bike, right? So we agree to um, for, that you sell, you as a professional seller sell me the bike, this very amazing bike I always wanted, and it just you just don't deliver. So that would be maybe a good example for specific performance? Delivery? It is, it is, yeah. Um, but of course, also in a case in which the bike was already delivered to you, mm -hmm. uh, but you're very much uh, unsatisfied uh, with it because of the defects that it has, mm -hmm. there too you would be able to claim uh, to claim performance from the professional seller. In particular, of course, in cases where, which is mostly the case, uh, where the bike, the new bike that you have bought, um, is not a unique thing. It's something uh, that is readily yeah. available also uh, with the uh, with the seller. Yeah. Um, and the seller would also always, well, you know, at least usually, be able to get similar bikes from the uh, manufacturer, for example, um, and deliver those to you. So you would still be able to claim performance uh, as well. Another question is whether you would still want performance from this apparently very bad, <laughs> very bad seller in your example. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. You you might you might simply want to go to uh, another seller, uh, go someplace else, and get rid of this specific very bad seller. Uh, that you can then also do by terminating the contract, getting your money back, and take your money and go to another uh, another uh, uh, specialized bike dealer. So that would be termination. That would be a claim for termination. In connection with damages. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, if you want to claim damages, that's still another another question. Mm-hmm. No, but if I would terminate, would I automatically get the money back? So that is outside of the scope of damages. Yes, that's outside of the scope okay. of damages. But now we get to a very technical topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you would simply get your uh, uh, your your uh, your price back, uh, mm-hmm. the price that you paid. But but you that's not a claim for for damages. Yeah. So a typical claim for damages in a situation like this. Uh, would, for example, be um, where uh, the let's say the uh, uh, the defect in the in the bike is in the brakes, so the brakes don't really work, and you get into an accident with your uh, with mm-hmm. your bike. Um, so you you uh, uh, you you run into a pedestrian, and a pedestrian gets hurt, and this pedestrian is going to claim money from you. Well, that then the question would pop up whether you would be able to uh, to to claim damages from the seller. Uh, for the amount that you have to pay to the pedestrian who got hurt. Let's go back to our Porsche case. I um, think that's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, let's imagine the Porsche seller uh, actually sell wants to sell me that uh, Porsche for only a thousand euro. Um, Writes it down everything, right? So it, we, it's at least easier to prove that there is an agreement. But in the end, it turns out this seller was under the influence of some drug, for example. Um, and a week later, the seller wants the Porsche back, provided that it was already uh, delivered. How does this influence the contract? Can I still rely on that contract, even though the seller was under the influence of drugs? Or can he say, I didn't mean it? That depends... That depends somewhat on the jurisdiction that we are <laughs> that we are looking uh, that we yeah. are looking into. Or maybe generally the problems that might occur in that regard. In general, what I what I what I what I um, should say about this type of case is that um, um, this is usually seen simply as a matter of again, uh, uh, well, applying the uh, the reliance uh, a principle. Okay. So if it was not not clear to you that this seller was under the influence of drugs. Um, not not clear to the buyer. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, is in such a case, uh, the contract would simply uh, well have been concluded and remain uh, remain intact. Would not be possible for the seller then to avoid uh, to get rid of that uh, of that contract. Um, so you can't use might that be, as a defense, for example. Not not really, not mm-hmm. really. No, if it was clear to the buyer that 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 he or she was dealing with someone who was obviously under the influence of drugs um, <laughs> or or alcohol. Then things would be uh, would be different, um, because then the, the the law simply reasons that you should have known um, about this, uh, and that 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 therefore you should have really checked in any event whether this whether this this seller was under the influence or not, mm-hmm. and perhaps have come back some other day um, to see whether this was still the, was still the case before you entered into the contract. We have also mentioned mistakes before, again, in the same case, with uh, just omitting a zero and then, oh, I get a fraction of the money I wanted, um, which is a defense. And what other defenses are there available for contracts? So there is an agreement and I somehow want to get out of there and I'm just trying to <laughs> to find a defense. Um, what is there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you could, you could say that traditionally the, ma- the main reason why you would be able to get out of a contract um, uh, is because of a, mm-hmm. uh, a defect in the, uh, in the consent. So in fact, lawyers also call these defects of consent um, a mistake uh, is one of them, in particular a mistake uh, about the object mm-hmm. of what you have been buying. 
so if you think that you are buying a Porsche which was built in 1970, uh, but in fact what you are buying is a is a is a copy that looked like it was made in 19 uh, in 1970, but in fact was made 30 years later. <laughs> um, you were only interested in the in the older car. Yeah, that could be a reason for avoiding the contract, getting rid of the contract for a mistake. The more the more obvious cases uh, are of course cases where there has been let's say some kind of fraud. Okay. Um, by by one of the parties, uh, or really an abuse case of abuse of circumstances. So the fraud would be that the seller actually well tells me this is a Picasso. Yes, yeah, simply where the seller uh, uh, is uh, deceiving you okay. uh, as a buyer about mm, intentionally possibly the mm -hmm. object that that uh, that he or she is uh, is selling. If in your example, if the seller simply knows that uh, this is not a Picasso that it is selling, but it tells the buyer it is a Picasso, which is worth, let's say, millions. Yeah. Uh, that would be a clear case of uh, uh, of fraud. And that would that would certainly allow the buyer to, uh, again, avoid, as we say, this contract. Um, and that would have the result that the uh, that the uh, that the uh, uh, that you will, will get back the price, but also that you will have to have to give back the the painting to the uh, to the uh, deceiving seller. We live in a contract society. We need offers and acceptance to conclude a contract. There are general rules that supplement um, such contracts. And there are defenses available. Did we miss anything? Well, um, I think many, many of the topics that we have been discussing so far um, are topics that were also very prevalent in the 19th century, for example. Like, mm -hmm. like I said, many of the principles and rules of contract law were developed in that time and still applied uh, uh, today. And that's in a way a very interesting thing to uh, to see, that we are still able to live with rules and <laughs> principles that were developed for a society yeah. that was, I would say, essentially different yeah. uh, from ours. It also tells you something there about the uh, the pervasiveness of these uh, uh, of these principles. But the interesting thing there is that um, sometimes these principles are uh, applied in such a way that they do meet the requirements of our 21st uh, uh, century. Um, we we spoke, but perhaps not not enough about uh, the information requirements. Yeah, well, yeah. What we forgot to speak about until until now, I would say, mm -hmm. is that there are in fact many of such uh, mandatory um, information requirements on the part of professional sellers. So that means that I myself, as a professional seller, have to inform you about something? Yes, yeah, so inform you about many different things. We, we gave the example of the credit agreement. Yeah. Um, there's a whole, also as a result of European legislation, a whole list of uh, topics on which the lending institution, again, let's say the bank, will have to inform the consumer uh, mm. if the consumer is interested in taking credit from that, uh, from that bank. Uh, and it's also information that has to be provided at different uh, different moments in time, already in the advertisement of the of the bank. I, I just wanted to say that I think it's it, it might have been quite new in Dutch law. Um, if I'm traveling around now, everything that, uh, says let up uh, getting to this contract costs you money, and then they actually calculate how much money you spend over yes. the next twenty four yeah. months. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the requirements yeah. that the bank will have to comply with. Um, these types of mandatory information requirements you see uh, you see everywhere 
Mm. Um, and again, the question is how effective this uh, uh, this actually this actually is. So that's something that, in particular, legal academics discuss, but with great consequences also for lawmakers, yeah. also for the European lawmaker, because if it is not so not so effective, then the question would, of course, be whether one should continue with these types of uh, information requirements or try to find alternatives in protecting the uh, well, supposedly weaker consumer. Yeah. Uh, are those is this information requirement or those information requirements directly linked to the validity of the contract? So I would say, um, well, I got into the contract, but the bank or even T-Mobile never ever told me that this is the outcome of my contract now. Well, actually, it's more linked to the state of the uh, formation of contracts. Mm -hmm. So it's all about, again, the consent of the parties. Yeah. Um, and some say there must be an informed consent. Um, you're only bound, uh, binding force again, you're only bound to the uh, to the contract if you were aware of what you were entering into and also aware of the consequences of what you were entering into. Uh, and for that, you need to be um, informed. So that's more the, more the idea. So um, uh, a, a true consent, uh, uh, the true willingness to uh, enter into a binding contract must be based on uh, information that you have readily available. So here the point very much is the, the professional party has all this information, uh, is very well informed, and what it should do is put the other party, the consumer, at the same level of information. And if that has been the case, okay, then it's uh, it's indeed fine to say this contract is binding also upon the consumer because it it it, it knowingly entered into this specific contract. Dear listeners, next time you go outside, do whatever. Just think about how many contracts you might conclude in those two hours going somewhere. Jan, um, if you would have to, in one or two sentences, tell us now what is a contract or what contract law is, what would you say? Well, th 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 then I would make the point that I also make in the uh, in the recent book, in the Introduction to Private Law, mm -hmm. where I look at the, the whole of private law, but in particular at contract law, Uh, as a means to enable people to uh, to flourish. It, it allows people to do the things that they would like to do in matters of, uh, uh, of economy, think about sale of goods, um, but also matters of employment, uh, uh, leisure, uh, family. And contract law allows people to shape uh, their legal relations with others uh, by, the, by choice. So it's all based on choices that people make and contract law facilitates uh, those choices. Jan, thank you very much. Um, I will link all your books, not all your books, but uh, the most recent ones in the description of the uh, podcast. Um, and again, thank you very much. Hopefully see you next time. It's a pleasure. Correct. Must be based on uh, information that you have readily available. So here the point very much is the, the professional party has all this information. Uh, is very well informed. And what it should do is put the other party, the consumer, at the same level of information. And if that has been the case, okay, then it's uh, it's indeed fine to say this contract is binding also upon the consumer because it, 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 it knowingly entered into this specific contract. Dear listeners, next time you go outside, do whatever, just think about how many contracts you might conclude in those two hours going somewhere. Jan, um, if you would have to, in one or two sentences, tell us now what is a contract or what contract law is, what would you say? 
Well, th- 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 then I would make the point that I also make in the uh, in the recent book, in the Introduction to Private Law, mm-hmm. where I look at the the whole of private law, but in particular at contract law, uh, as a means to enable people to uh, to flourish. It it allows people to do the things that they would like to do in matters of uh, uh, of economy. Think about sale of goods, um, but also matters of employment, uh, uh, leisure. Uh, family and contract law allows people to shape uh, their legal relations with others uh, by the by choice so it's all based on choices that people make and contract law facilitates uh, those choices Jan thank you very much um, I will link all your books not all your books but uh, the most recent ones in the description of the uh, podcast um, and again thank you very much hopefully see you next time it's a pleasure <laughs>